Welcome to episode 12 of Taekwondo the Shame Chronicles. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Melanie. <laughs> and I'm Josh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we're doing things a little bit differently this week um, for the audience at home. Melanie and Josh will, for the first time, be hearing all of the audio uh, as it happens instead of me editing in later. Um, so I don't know if that's what they were laughing about or not. <laughs> No, I was laughing about my super awkward intro, and I'm Melanie. <laughs> oh, well, that's I think that's probably the part of the show that we uh, uh, need to improve on the most, and it's not, not just you. <laughs> um, so basically, I just try to get through it as quickly as possible, uh, and so that we can get on to the real, uh, the real meat of the show. Um, sure. So, uh, awkward transitioning to the meat of the show. Um, so today is Earth Day. Um, uh, we're recording this on Sunday, April the 22nd. Um, so, have you guys done anything for Earth Day today? No. <laughs> uh, and our, our previous attempt at recording, I believe you mentioned that you uh, celebrated it the same way you celebrated St. Patrick's Day, which is to say you did not drink today. Correct. Um, I did get bit by a mosquito. That's oh, earthy. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you kill it? No, it flew away. Wow. Oh. I would have killed it if I'd been able to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of uh, little critters that I, you know, feel um, some amount of, I guess, empathy toward. And if they're in the house, I'll just try to get them out of the house. Uh-huh. But I think all mosquitoes should probably be dead. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, that was actually one of the... Well, this is, this is a weird tangent to this, but um, <laughs> when... Uh, when Lauren and I went to um, Europe for the first time, I wasn't quite sure what to expect as far as the local uh, fauna was concerned, <laughs> specifically the insects. Uh, I was worried that maybe there was going to be like a completely different set of insects because that's not something that anyone ever talks to you about when right. you go abroad. Um, and it, it turns out that for the most part, it's the same insects. I'm assuming because of... Uh, the sort of non-strict standards of uh, transporting livestock or um, uh, <laughs> vegetables and fruits across continents, uh, that for the most part, um, we have the same insects that Europe does. Uh-huh. Uh, but one of the things that I found the most annoying is the mosquitoes there um, are really persistent and <laughs> are able to get inside of the hotels and stuff pretty easily <laughs> and uh i'm not i'm not normally the kind of person that sleeps like under the sheets like my head under the sheets or the covers or anything. <laughs> but that was pretty much the only way that i could sleep there uh <laughs> because it was literally like the mosquito well first of all there's no air conditioning or anything so there's no like background noise at all it's complete really? silence and you hear 
you hear the mosquito flying towards your face from about 10 <laughs> feet away. And just like that buzzing sound getting louder and louder and louder until it's like right next to you. And then um, I, I don't know, maybe I just had a problem with this and Lauren didn't. But I remember a couple times just like wildly thrashing about in the bed, like trying to <laughs> trying to blindly slap this uh, mosquito, uh, which I never did. And so finally, I, I guess she didn't have a problem with it because she normally sleeps under the sheets. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really bothering her. Uh, but yeah, towards the end of it, I almost had to um, sort of uh, swaddle myself <laughs> from, <laughs> from head to toe in, uh, in the sheets in the comforter uh, to get away from their mosquitoes. So, yeah, that's kind of terrible. Yeah. And when they get close to your ear, it's like such a high-pitched budget buzzing. Yeah, and so that was the that was the thing that was throwing me off is... I could hear them because there was no ambient noises. I could hear them from much further away than I'm used to. Mm-hmm. And so I would be like thinking that it's practically in my ear and yeah. I would, uh, I wouldn't like <laughs> slap the side of my face or anything, but I would like, you know how, uh, you'll, you'll sort of like reach out with your open hand and try to like smash it, like close it together, like close your hand around <laughs> it or whatever. Right. I'm doing that like next to my face all night. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I came to learn later, uh, when the lights were on, that the mosquito was really like two or three feet away from me. <laughs> hmm. uh, I got stung by a bee in Europe. <laughs> really? Was it yeah. a European, uh, honeybee? Yeah, it was a little Italian honeybee. And, uh, it wasn't any more charming than when you get stung by a bee in the United States. <laughs> Have you been stung by a bee in the, in the United States? Yeah, I've been stung by a bee once in high school. Hmm. Um, I don't remember that. Yeah, you weren't there. Uh, you were in college. <laughs> it was my senior year. Oh, and, okay. uh, it was I a California by, bee. It was a California bee. I got stung by a bee during a water polo game. <laughs> <laughs> For whatever reason, bees and, like, wasps and hornets really like pools. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's <laughs> <Happy> Earth Day. <laughs> this is the day where we talk about all of nature's insects that we hate. Um, so I guess you guys don't have any other plans for Earth Day today. You're not, like, planting a tree or anything. No, it's way too hot outside to even do anything anyway. <laughs> well, so. we did. Uh, we didn't do this on our own, but our uh, landlords <laughs> finally came out to our house. We have this. You, we had that bush like um, right by the the front door, the one that probably when you were here it looked pretty dead. I'm assuming. Uh, I vaguely remember a big dead bush. Yeah, yeah. and it kind of it like stuck out into the sidewalk. Um, and we called it a rape bush, um, <laughs> because it's, it was big enough that it created like this, uh, creepy corner in, at the side of our house where it seemed like that would be the kind of thing that would happen there. Um, and then just if it finally the other day, they, they said they were going to come by and take it out. And then, uh, when when they were actually removing it, we left to go see a movie, I think, and when we came back, there was this <laughs> tiny little bush planted in its place. <laughs> like, it was so small. It was like less than a foot high. Or something. <laughs> uh, it looks ridiculous. Yeah. 
Well, I guess it's better than having a rape bush, right? I think yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> so that's we didn't actually plant anything, but uh, something was planted on our property. So sure. Um, yeah, I'm not really doing anything for Earth Day either. Um, I can't promise I won't drink anything. Uh, I may ha- I may have a beer later. <laughs> um, but uh, I did. Um, or well, I, maybe this isn't really something that you normally do on Earth Day. I mowed the lawn today, uh, so I don't know how that will help the environment or not, but it makes the house look <laughs> a lot nicer. <laughs> uh, that's probably that's probably something that's anti-Earth Day, right? Mowing the lawn. Well, yeah. Probably like any yard work that you do. Probably the worst thing you could possibly do is water your lawn. Um. And I've been doing a pretty good job of not watering the lawn, so. <laughs> yes, today I'm not watering anything. <laughs> so. Uh, you're helping the Earth by propagating the human species. <laughs> That's true. This is something That's... that you planned out like five months ago. <laughs> <laughs> because you know we need more people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it might actually any... be anti-Earth. <laughs> yeah, if there's anything the Earth needs, it's uh, more people. So, um, okay, but that's why did I don't know why we started talking about Earth Day. I don't know why I brought that up. I was gonna say, um, yeah, you brought it up. Yeah, so sorry. Uh, we'll bring back the apology segment where I apologize for bringing up Earth Day <laughs> and not really have having anything to talk about other than European mosquitoes. Um. All right, so. I guess I'll take the opportunity here to play some transition music, and then I'll edit this part out later. (laughs) 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 Or maybe not. Uh, Okay. Uh, This this is going to make a lot more sense after we talk about um, how I probably shouldn't have brought up Earth Day. Um, Okay, so... Uh, welcome back to the, after that break. <laughs> um, all right, so there wasn't just like to uh, to do a live show. Is that right? Yeah, apparently, uh, we're gonna need a little more practice before we ever do this live. Um, so, uh. Guys, I, I really only had one uh, one thing I wanted to talk about. Well, maybe two things I wanted to talk about today. But only one thing that I have any real um, research or any time that I've spent um, thinking about it. Uh, and that is uh, the, the subject of learning and teaching. Um, and I figured that since you guys are both teachers and also both students, that maybe uh, we could have a... Um, I don't know, somewhat intelligent conversation <laughs> about this. Um, but I guess the reason why I've been thinking about this uh, lately, and by lately I mean over like the past two or three years, uh, is because I've been doing a lot of stuff uh, in uh, sort of the artificial intelligence space in computer science, um, which, uh, which is to say that I don't really know a whole lot, and also computer science doesn't really know a whole lot. Um, and the sort of crossover into, uh, like real science about how humans learn, um, hasn't been very helpful so far because of the 
uh, the sort of the differences in hardware between humans and um, machines. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been thinking about I think been thinking a lot about this lately from a um, from a non-computer perspective, and that is sort of the the fundamental things that help people to learn. Um, and I think I've settled on one thing as being the the most important uh, concept that humans have uh, for sort of sharing information with each other, and that is the metaphor. Um, yep. So uh, I don't know if you guys you guys probably took sociology classes in your uh, undergrad studies, right? Uh, I took one. One. So yeah, I think I took the one. <laughs> uh, well, I think this is like sociology 101 stuff anyway, but are you guys familiar with the concept of like not really having any individuality, <laughs> that your individuality comes from uh, sort of a sum of your uh, interactions and learned behaviors from interacting with other people, society as a whole? Yeah. You sure. don't really you, you don't really have any new or unique ideas inside you. <laughs> uh, you're just sort of taking things in and... Uh, maybe interpreting them in a slightly different way because your your brain is slightly different than everyone else's. Um, mm-hmm. But that your idea that you think is unique uh, isn't isn't really your own. Even if it is unique, it, it didn't start as your own. So, um, so my thought, or I thought about why, um, why humans are able to learn uh, and teach each other effectively and I thought about what helps me to learn effectively and I, and I really settled on this idea of the metaphor um, or the example uh, if you want to get a little less abstract about it mm-hmm. but um, pretty much anything that we learn in school uh, when you learn a new concept or learn about a new concept the teacher sort of provides an example of something that you're already familiar with um, and then changes that slightly uh, for whatever the new concept is. So I was just curious uh, what you guys thought about um, sort of the methods of learning and the method- methods of teaching. Um, well, I, I think the metaphor is important. I know that um, one of the biggest challenges that I have teaching from a textbook um, which is usually sort of like, these are the fundamentals of composition or these are the fundamentals of rhetoric or whatever. Um, the challenging part is, so I like, I'll assign that reading, which is usually pretty dry and straightforward. And then, uh, in order to know if my students understood it, then I have to think of examples, um, that ask them to demonstrate those skills. So I don't think you could, I mean, like some people could memorize the fun, like the fundamentals, but it wouldn't be able to actually put them into practice. Um, and it's only in specific examples or specific instances where you can actually put those things into practice. Into practice. So, I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we were actually talking about this uh, the other day. Um, I think we were talking about math and. Uh, the separation between when, like, the teacher shows you the concept um, and they work through some problems with you, and then there's the gap between that and uh, the actual homework that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which Melanie was saying, it seems like there that is often a really large gap. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've noticed that with uh, I'm taking some of those classes um, from Udacity, which is like they're doing free programming classes. Uh-huh. And uh, on the forums, a lot of time it seems like a common complaint is they're they have like quizzes as you go through the lectures, the videos, and then they have homework problems. And people are saying these homework problems are way too hard compared to the quizzes. And the problem is that the people aren't taking the concepts and then seeing how they can apply that to the homework to solve the problem. Um, and so I think that's, I would say that falls into the example idea, like taking the, the cons, the uh, abstract idea and then how does that actually work out to, uh, to solve a problem or whatever. And I, th- I think, uh, that's important. Right. Um, that was actually, that was something else that I was thinking about because when normally the first step in teaching a new concept is you teach the example, uh, but what you're really trying to teach, I mean, you're trying to teach the concept, right? So that you can sort of take, uh, use that knowledge and apply it to some other example or some other situation, right? But it's the same yeah. sort of concept that links the two together. Um, and, uh, so this sort of, um, I guess I'd call it like an abstraction. The abstraction of the, of the concept mm-hmm. is, is the important part or is the yeah. part that, that once you learn that, then you, uh, then you pretty much have a, you, you have the fundamental knowledge of the, of the concept. Right. Um, and I see that there's a, there's a lot of that in, uh, computer science particularly, um, there's even like one of the fundamental concepts of uh, object-oriented programming is is called abstraction, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of things. There's there's things called like design patterns, and it's sort of like templates for um, for cert- solving certain types of problems. Um, those are all sort of abstracted ideas. Um, but so I was thinking about sort of the uh, the intelligence or the relative intelligence between um, animals. Uh, in humans or humans and other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to think if we we're actually that much more intelligent or if we, or if it's just this, uh, this one extra sort of level of figuring out metaphors and understanding abstractions that, uh, uh, and our ability to teach each other these things that actually makes us so much smarter or so much more advanced. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of that has to do with uh, our ability to create physical objects as well, like paper or tablets or whatever it is to sort of record <laughs> things, uh, record ideas and allow them to be shared more easily. Uh, and obvious, obviously our language as well. Um, I guess that would have been first. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I, I was remembering there's a, there's a scene in, um, I think it was... One of those uh, Animal Planet documentaries, like Planet Earth or something, where there's a scene where the there are these monkeys that um, they have learned, or some of the monkeys have learned how to open uh, these hard nuts by basically putting them on a hard surface and then smashing them with a particular kind of rock mm-hmm. uh, to get to the the meat of the nut inside. And uh, the younger monkeys can't directly like look at the older monkeys who have figured it out and then just naturally sort of uh, 
say, oh, it's this particular type of rock on this particular type of surface um, with this amount of effort to swing the rock down or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. The only way that they can learn it is sort of by um, trial and error until one day they finally do it. And then once they finally do it, then they, they have learned the behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't really taught that behavior. They were taught, oh, they were sort of taught, uh, these are the, the types of tools <laughs> that I can use, <laughs> but nobody nobody can tell them what the actual tool is or what the actual technique is. Um, but if you look at sort of uh, more intelligent species, uh, uh, like orangutans or gorillas, humans are able to teach... Uh, to teach these apes like sign language or simple games or things like that, mm -hmm. and it just it just makes me wonder if there's a way to teach them to teach, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which seems like kind of the the next step, or that's the that's the reason why humans are so much more advanced than any other animal. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. our brains are bigger and we have sort of the capacity for this, which is where we are in the first place. But I just wonder if there are any sort of less intelligent species that have the same capacity. Just maybe at a slightly lower level. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think that, uh, like you said, the I, the advancement of like passing it on in some sort of physical form, like writing, um, I think, you know, that creates huge advantages even over language to pass on information. It's basically like like your DNA are, already has tons of information on it that's passed on um, you know, from generation to generation and then there's some things that you can learn from um, you know, the, the other whatever type of animal that's around you. Um, but to be able to continually transmit a body of knowledge like that, I think is a, is a huge difference. Right, so that that sort of makes me wonder about like species like uh like dolphins or smart uh mm -hmm. sea based yeah. life forms where right. the ability to create these sort of physical uh artifacts isn't possible because of the sort of erosive nature of the ocean um, mm -hmm. but it kind of makes me wonder if like if like a dolphin could uh <laughs> could learn to like read and write <laughs> or uh um well, they're already capable of sort of passing down knowledge right um, not necessarily through language but through uh observed behavior but that was another thing that was in the uh, planet earth is there's a particular um region where the dolphins have learned how to sort of catch fish by um creating sort of dirt rings in the shallow water that forces the fish together into the center and that's mm -hmm. um, something that no other dolphin species does, or no other dolphins in any other part of the ocean does. It's something this particular group did, and then sort of have been passing it on since ever since. Right. So they, they, there's clearly the ability for certain species, certain intelligent species, to pass on behavior that's not part of their, um, that's not passed on through like DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think. Um... The we what was it we saw it was this other thing where they were talking about dolphins and uh, Nova Science. Nova Science, yeah. Were you going to talk about that, Melanie? Yeah, but you can. Well, I was they uh, one part that they did was that was talking about how they teach them 
like tricks. The uh, trainers can teach them tricks, and then they have like signs that show, you know, do this trick. They're basically like symbols. But then they taught them a new symbol for like to create something, and then they showed that, and then the dolphins like created a completely different trick by combining. And it was two of them that did it at the same time. So they like went underwater and basically communicated what they were going to do. And then they came back up and did this new trick that they had never done before. Huh. Uh, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. So, but it wasn't so much that they were teaching anything, but they were able yeah. to create something new. Yeah. Yeah, so they weren't just repeating. They were they were doing it on their own, being creative. Um, that's uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the this video of of dolphins blowing um, air rings. Um, but basically, like uh, they sort of have the you know they can sort of squirt air out of their mouths into sort of a, a vortex ring. You know, like when you blow like smoke rings. Or see uh-huh. someone blow smoke rings. They can do this underwater with air, uh-huh. and uh, it's really it's really interesting to watch them do this because there's there's no sort of there's no biological <laughs> sort of imperative for them to have learned this behavior. It's really just them sort of playing because uh-huh. uh, because you'll see them like blow the air out and then they'll sort of follow it and they'll sort of like stick their nose through it and then back out <laughs> and then like uh, they'll sort of like. Uh, like grab the corner of it and sort of like blow it off into a new direction. Um, it's really, really interesting <laughs> to watch. And it kind of like, I think, uh, I think humans are sort of taught or maybe just infer at a young age that we're sort of the, this like super unique species, <laughs> um, <laughs> which obviously we are, but, uh, but I, I, I feel like sometimes we're taught that we're more sort of important or more unique than we actually are. It's if you look at some of these other species and their ability to learn and create and uh play and do all these things that humans do um just sort of at a maybe at a lower intelligence level if you want to call it that. Um it's just really interesting to to think about that. Yeah. Um the other thing that makes me think of is We've been watching Frozen Planet. Have you been watching that? Uh, no. For some reason, um, well, I don't want to get off at a tangent. Go ahead and <laughs> I'll just leave it at no for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this one scene in it with um, killer whales, and they're like incredibly intelligent, and you know they hunt together in like really smart ways, uh-huh. um, which involve like creating waves that will like knock an animal off of an iceberg and stuff like that. Um, yeah, they all I, swim. They all swim in unison, and then through the way that they yeah, they dive under and create a wave that tips over this piece of ice that a seal is on, or something like that. Huh. Yeah, but it's but like not only did they have to figure out that that worked at some point, <laughs> but also like they have to be able to coordinate however many of them there are in order to time it just right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I guess relies more on communication than necessarily, like, uh, I mean, obviously it's learned behavior or maybe it's instinctual or something. I don't know. But, um, I guess it relies more on them communicating with each other than anything else. 
Well, related to that is um, they had another one scene where they were uh, there were some other killer whales who were um, like chasing penguins up to the ice, and it turns out that like this particular species of killer whale doesn't actually eat penguins, and so they were only <laughs> doing it to like to teach the young the younger whales how to do a certain thing like where they would swim up to the ice and, like, come out of the ice to see where the penguins were and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. I don't remember where we what we were talking about. Well, you started by talking about metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so back to metaphors. There's there's this sort of, uh, like, if we look at it from, like, a literary standpoint, um, the reason why people choose metaphors other than just sort of as a uh, it's sort of it's more important than the sort of flowery flowery language part of it right <laughs> it's right. it's really the the power of the metaphor is that it's very uh dense in information right you're able to you're able to sort of transmit this um this idea uh by relating it to something else um mm-hmm. and by creating that relationship you're sort of you're giving the idea, you're transmitting with the idea more information than the than the words themselves carry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I've read at different times that um, a lot of scientists uh, like poetry um, and that like like writing poetry, and that a lot of them are really good at it. And I think it's because of that they're like so much of scientific uh, understanding science concepts is about like translate translating that metaphor idea like this is being able to say this is like something else or that kind yeah, of thing yeah like when a show the universe does this a lot but it's always in kind of a goofy way like <laughs> they had this one where this this girl she was like some I don't know if she was a scientist or maybe she was a grad student or something studying no, science. No, she was a yeah, she was she was a, a professor somewhere. Oh, okay, but she she's like kind of hip looking and had like dyed hair and like tattoos. Mm-hmm. And when they first showed her, she was talking about something sitting like sitting on a rock somewhere talking about it. And then and then later she was she was trying to illustrate the concept of I think it was about um was it about like elliptical uh paths of like planets or something or planets in there it was about uh it was about objects having a a shared like uh center of gravity where they that they orbit around Uh right so like a the earth and the and the sun actually orbit around a certain point because of their effect of a gravity on each other and i think that's what it was but so later on (laughs) they had her she was like in the dark with like, were they on fire or were they just glowing? Whatever no, those things were. <laughs> they were on fire. She had these things, these like, uh, what were those things? Do you even know what they were? I can't remember what it was called that she did. It was like a fire twirler or something. Yeah, but they were, like these, on, they were like on rope or something. Yeah, like these oh, little like, balls uh, of like, fire on there. Like poi. Yeah. I think it's called poi. It's a Japanese okay. thing. Not to but, be confused with the Hawaiian food. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so funny because, you know, they show her, like, you know, sitting in, in an environment, like, on a rock somewhere talking about this concept. And then in order to, like, fully illustrate it, they have to, like, 
make it dark, light it on fire. <laughs> and I'm, and I feel like she was like also exposing her stomach while doing this. Like I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> yes, well, yes, she was also a belly dancer. Right, right. So she's like dancing with fire, okay. and and the whole point was to demonstrate how it was sort of like an elliptical kind of, uh, like path or whatever that the fire was taking, and how it was like going around each other. And I just, but that's what cracks me up about that show because they explain the concept. And a lot of times I'm like, all right, cool, I get it. And then they'll like do something so over the top and ridiculous. <laughs> but I guess if you didn't understand the concept, they would be like, they would be helpful. So. Right. I don't know. Um, and that's, that's interesting you bring that up because I, I think that that's, uh, one of the, um, one of the weaknesses of the, of the metaphor of the example is that a lot of times it sort of distracts from the concept that you're trying to, <laughs> to teach. Um, or maybe it's like no, uh, no example is ever perfect. So there's always like, uh, even if, even if the example is like 90% of the way there, there's always that sort of 10% that's unexplained by it. That has to be either learned from some other example or through some other, some other way of teaching it. Right. Yeah. Um, which happens a lot in sort of the math and science area, which I guess is why they do it on the, on that uh, the universe series, right. but you know, I do think that it's really true, though. That like, I think it's a learned skill to be able. I mean, obviously it is, but to be able to interpret metaphors, it's sort of like when kids reach the age where they understand sarcasm. Like before they understand sarcasm, they really don't like. They really don't get it. Like they have to learn to understand what sarcasm is, and like before kids understand that when you use a metaphor, you're attaching associations or ideas about one thing to another thing. And you're like further illuminating the second thing until they've like seen that and practiced it and understood how that works. They don't always make the connection between the two. Like they sometimes just get confused. Right. And so, and I really think that, um, like, like with the students that I teach, some of them, there is a further, there is a bigger gap between, like, immediately understanding when you're comparing two things like that. Um, and I think it comes, it comes down to, like, critical thinking skills and being able to, like, recognize associations and stuff. So I think, like, when people are less able to interpret metaphors, it really does affect the way they can learn other, other things. All right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right about sort of, uh, there's there we're not sort of born knowing <laughs> uh knowing how to interpret the metaphor knowing or or i guess especially to to be able to create a metaphor so that somebody else can can learn from you in that way um it it kind of makes me wonder how um well since since metaphor seems to be such a powerful learning tool like how humans learn anything at all <laughs> because we're we're clearly not born that way it's sort of a i guess it's the during the development of our of our brains um we learn a lot of things probably just through observing behavior um right. but it makes me kind of wonder how the brain how the brain learns in that way yeah yeah i think that um while it it takes um time to to be able to understand metaphor and something that 
abstract. I do think that we build on like small abstractions. So we understand that like um, something that is good in one situation will be good in a different situation, even if it's not ex- exactly the same. Or like we can understand that I know what a real apple is versus like a picture of an apple. Like I right. think we pick up on those kinds of abstractions pretty quickly, and then those those build into more complex ideas like metaphors and so. Um, so the the last thing I wanted to really talk about is sort of um, the the novelty of people who have like actual new unique ideas. <laughs> <laughs> people like Einstein uh, who came up who basically. It seems like every time this happens, it sort of revolutionizes uh, the way um, the way society or the way humanity thinks. Um, like probably uh, the first humans who created fire or uh, learned learned how to harness fire. The first humans who uh, learned how to practice agriculture. But it it seems like that's that's a very rare thing. It happens like maybe <laughs> once or twice in a given generation, um, and and a lot of times it's not as big as uh, as those examples that I gave. But as as sort of uh, creative people, um, do you guys ever feel the sort of pressure to create <laughs> to create like <laughs> like actual new unique things? Yes. <laughs> 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 do you do you ever worry that it's like almost impossible to create something new? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think most people uh who write or who study writing or teach writing, it's kind of a given that nothing you create at this point is going to be entirely new. Right. I mean, I think people who are doing um experimental kinds of writing are often taking something familiar and twisting it in some some novel way by changing a form or or something like that. Um, like Josh's novel does the does that. But what it really, I mean, he could talk about this too. But he's taking a novel that has narrative elements and uh, using a form that is not usually what we consider like like he's using the structure of a podcast but written. So it's, I don't know, Josh, maybe you can be clearer about it than I can, but, but it's taking like the familiar idea of a novel with, with narrative elements, but it's changing the the form that is delivered in. Yeah. And I think that, um, like you said, it's just a sort of different variation of something else. Like that's having a novel in a different form isn't new like you know we have novels in the form of blogs or um letters you know basically since we've had novels we've had people doing them in different ways so right yeah there's that acknowledgement that this isn't necessarily anything totally new but it's like i mean it's like the guy who wrote the the novel without using the letter e i mean it's just a matter of different constraints sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like what that guy did, he chose to do something that, you know, nobody else has done by simply removing a letter from the letters available to him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> but then there are other people who would say like, okay, so, but that's just like sort of invention for invention's sake in some ways, you know, like, um, some people would discount a lot of experimental work just because it seems like you can't write a new story. So you're just trying to write a story in a different way. Um, and some people, I guess, don't always see the point in that, but, well, but like, think, sorry, go ahead. Um, well, I was going to say in that particular example, I haven't, I haven't read this book, so I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily, uh, if it has any sort of other merits other than the sort of novelty <laughs> that you mentioned where it doesn't have any, doesn't have the letter E in it. Um, but I think there's probably some sort of uh, threshold where if you were to take this sort of two, these two ideas of sort of um, the novelty of something and also the, the quality of, <laughs> of the thing that it's um, sort of uh, twisting or uh, changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, if both of those things are, are relatively high, then uh, it's pretty much, it's, it's considered impressive to, uh, I guess, both parties, the people who are looking for the quality and the people who are looking for the, the novelty. But if it's right. sort of one or the other, it will really just appeal to one of those groups. And then, obviously, if, it, if either of those things are low enough, um, it probably won't appeal to anybody. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's I think that's true. true. I mean, yeah, it's, we talked about, um, I had a class last semester, we talked about constrained writing and we read that book and then, um, we talked about another book or I guess, I don't know, it's not a book, but it was like supposed to be writing the story without repeating any words. And that was a case where it was like, Hey, this is a really cool idea. And then the actual, um, carrying out of that idea turned out to be like, well, no, this early, this isn't very good. (laughs) Yeah. I I guess if the, if the constraint was too constraining (laughs) for you to actually (laughs) write something that was good. Um, or I guess, I guess maybe that's what, what makes, um, uh, like a book that doesn't have the letter E in it. Maybe that's impressive because of the constraint. It seems like a, uh, almost impossible undertaking, right? E is, E is the most popular ling- or letter in the English language, or most used letter. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I can't imagine writing anything that's not like a, a Twitter message <laughs> that doesn't repeat <laughs> any words. So, right, <laughs> like in that case, that constraint seems like a little a little too constraining. Yeah. Well, and I have, in that case also, like it was interesting because you get to see, like, what does that mean when you take the letter E out? And it turns out that actually, like, that affects the types of things you can write. Like, for one, you can't really write past tense in English mm-hmm. um, because, you know, most of our verbs end in ED when they're in past tense. And so it's going to be in the present tense. And then there are all these other implications that that means. Like, it's going to uh, it's gonna affect the type of um, novel you can actually write just by changing what what letters you allow yourself to use so bringing this back a little bit uh, i originally started talking about artificial intelligence um the sort of limitations that that i'm aware of so far in the in the field of artificial intelligence is that we're sort of trying to model the physical aspect 
of the human brain, the sort of uh, neurons that connect together and fire signals off uh, to one another based on the inputs that they have. Um, and so they've even gone so far as to connect like millions of these uh, sort of artificial neurons together, uh, but they haven't really had any satisfactory results as far as uh, having, having something actually learn. It's really just sort of programming a machine to do something in a slightly more obtuse way than uh than just programming it to do that thing <laughs> right. um, which and maybe in for certain scenarios it's way easier to to teach it or to to write the program in this way um but nobody's really risen above that uh that core problem um but i feel like maybe the problem is that uh they're really only trying to model the physical aspect of it they're really only trying to model the the brain and not necessarily the 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 ways that humans learn through sort of metaphor and abstraction and all that stuff mm -hmm. it's really just like dumping a whole bunch of inputs into something and then telling it whether whether or not the outputs are correct um <laughs> which isn't really how humans learn i mean maybe at a at a really base fundamental level but um when you talk about uh sort of being uh cognizant of of a concept um, like if, if somebody was teaching you how to do a certain set of math problems and the only feedback that you got was, no, your answer was wrong, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to, no, your answer was wrong, but this is where you messed it up, um, we probably wouldn't be very good at, at learning new things. So. <laughs> right. Um, I watched this uh, hour-long documentary, I guess, called The Science of Babies. Uh-huh. And there was a it had a bunch of different things in it like that that even um infants know how to do math. <laughs> um <laughs> which was really interesting, but one of the uh, it's kind of like these different experiments, I guess. Um and one of them this guy was trying to teach he was trying to figure out how to teach a computer I think just language, the way that children learn language. Uh -huh. um, they didn't have any like definitive results or anything. They were just demonstrating sort of what he did in his project or whatever. But he set up like audio and cameras and stuff all throughout his house. And then he filmed his infant for a year or something. Um, and was trying to, like was trying to figure out, I guess he was trying to analyze the way his infant learned the English language so that he could use the specific ways to then teach a computer, <laughs> uh -huh. I guess. Um, and they didn't actually, they didn't say if he was like successful or not, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was just interesting because this kid, well, well, what I found interesting about it was that this kid before he was even a year old was saying grapefruit. And I thought like that was pretty, uh, <laughs> that's like a word that babies don't usually say <laughs> but I think I think they were a lot they were really active in like teaching the kid words though so like this kid walks into a room and his mom's sitting there eating a grapefruit and he points and says grapefruit like <laughs> I, so I don't know they didn't show if they sat there for hours saying this is a grapefruit you know <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> but that's funny um because I was 
listening to something the other day. They were talking about um, like facial recognition, um, not facial recognition, like in computers, but recognizing facial gestures and then like what those mean, what what are people's emotions are, what they're thinking because of that. Um, and it, another, there was this other guy who who studied that, a psychologist, I think. And uh, when he had a kid, he took like a sabbatical um, from his teaching job or research job and basically just like studied all of his kids' facial expressions and recorded them and all this. And I was thinking like that's apparently the way to go as a scientist. Um, you need to have a kid because it's like <laughs> it's a free test subject. You know? Yeah. <laughs> You have 24-7 access to your yeah. test <laughs> So yeah. we need to figure out what we're going to test on our on our kid. Yeah, yeah you, don't, you don't need anyone to, like, sign papers or <laughs> <laughs> or anything. You just have to make sure that what you're doing isn't, like, so crazy that CPS gets involved. I was going to yeah. say, you don't want to end up being, like, Skinner with his Skinner box or whatever that thing was. Uh, you know was, what I'm talking about? Was that the guy that put his daughter in, like, an aquarium? I think so. I, I can't even actually remember what the experiment was now. But I'm pretty sure it involved putting her in a box. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, I think I, I remember what you're talking about. Uh, the, the unfortunate experiment, uh, Schrodinger's baby. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty sure that's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this... But you, I guess you could be like, well, but officer, we haven't opened the box yet, so we don't know if my child is alive or dead. <laughs> Technically, he's both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had, you should watch that documentary. It's on Netflix because it's really interesting. They had this other section where uh, they were talking about how when babies sort of graduate to learn new postures, so like they go from, um, they go from just lying around to being able to crawl, or they go from crawl, like, or they're able to sit up. Uh, to then when they can like start walking and stuff. Apparently, each time they hit one of those milestones, they have to relearn um, certain concepts about boundaries. Uh-huh. So, um, so they did this experiment where they had this baby like um, I can't remember like what they started with, but um, if they had the baby like sitting. At a certain, um, like they would have the baby sit on a ledge, <laughs> like not a high ledge, but have the baby sit on a <laughs> ledge and then put a, put something that the baby wanted, like a toy just out of its reach in front of it so uh-huh. that the only way to reach for it would be to fall off the table. And <laughs> I know it sounds terrible. Um, it sounds like the one they, we're going to do, I think. <laughs> they, they would catch the baby if it fell, but, um, but yeah, they would put it just out of reach. And so. Uh, the first time it would do it, it would reach and the, and the baby would fall and they'd have to catch it. But then it would learn, oh, I can't reach something that far away. But then as soon as the baby goes from sitting to standing and like walking, they would have the baby walk to the ledge and put the toy the same distance away on the same ledge and it would walk right off the ledge again. Because like, apparently when it... fall? <laughs> yeah, it would just walk right... It would like reach for the toy even though the distance of the from the baby to the toy hadn't changed, but their posture had changed, so they had to relearn <laughs> that they couldn't reach that far away without falling. <laughs> so apparently, when your baby goes from like crawling to walking, um, if they knew that they shouldn't crawl right off the table, apparently they don't know that they should not walk right off the table. <laughs> <laughs> 
So when they start uh, going through those changes, it's a good time to keep an extra eye on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's the point. <laughs> or don't put your baby on any tables. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we've all got different strategies, Kyle. <laughs> right. It, it, like ramps up to the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then just like a foam pad on the floor. But it just goes back to the point that like you you would assume that the baby's understanding of distance wouldn't change just because they're standing versus sitting or whatever. So like, even though they learn something in one context, they don't necessarily maintain the same information in another context. So babies aren't as smart as we thought. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> so you're saying they don't actually know math. Well, the math thing was different. They actually do know math. <laughs> And they can also say grapefruit, but yeah, they don't. They don't really know. Do you want me to tell you real quickly what the experiment was? Sure. Okay, so um, the math experiment was uh, they they had a I want to say they had like a six month old and then they had like a one year old to see if there was any difference, and um, so they they put the baby in front of like what looks like a um, like a puppet show. Uh, stage thing, you know, those like real small ones you set on like a table. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Like a little, it looks like a little box I think. that like, hides your hand or whatever. Uh, no, wait, no, now I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that doesn't, that maybe that's a bad, that's a bad comparison. Um, basically what they had was, uh, they had like a curtain, um, and behind that curtain, there was like a, like a small stage that you could set on a table. And the stage had like a, a door on the right side of the stage, a door on the left side of the stage, and a door in the back in the center of the stage. And um, they would put like a stuffed animal on the stage. And then they would show a hand reaching in through the left door with a second stuffed animal. And, um, oh, and there was also like a, like a little, a little flap that you could pull up that covered the center of the stage, but it left the sides of the stage exposed. Uh So they would, they would have the flap down, they would show a stuffed animal, and then they'd put the flap up, and then they would show a hand coming in from the left and putting another stuffed animal behind the flap. And then when they pulled the flap down, there were two stuffed animals there. Right. And so they would, so usually when they did this experiment, the baby would like look at it and then look away like it wasn't interested. But then, um, because they had the back door that the flap covered, sometimes they would put a stuffed animal there and then they would show a second stuffed animal coming in on the left side of the stage. But while the flap was still covering the front of the stage, they would remove one of the stuffed animals through the back. So there was still only one stuffed animal there. And when they lowered the flap, the baby would get like really agitated because it knew there was supposed to be two there. Right. So they did like a, a bunch of other experiments sort of using like, you know, the baby is observing something and then they have expected results, but sometimes right. the results were different. So I guess the, the sort of core concept there is the idea of object permanence, right? Yeah. Like there's a certain age that babies learn that um, objects uh, like continue to exist even though they can't observe them. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which I guess is kind of a, a pretty important concept when when learning uh, math or when understanding math. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A lot of... Sorry, go ahead. Look, no, go ahead. 
I was just going to say that math math deals with a lot of like abstract concepts, things that you can't see or touch, um, but you sort of have to intuit in some way. Uh, so you have to sort of keep track of those things in your head. So, right. Yeah, I was just going to say that it, um, it's a pretty complicated one too. It seems like <laughs> to to be able to understand that you know objects are where they uh, were before. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like sometimes they would add a stuffed animal through the back, and so they would add one from the side, and they would add one from the back, and the baby was only expecting two to be there, and then there were three there, and so that also bothered them. <laughs> <laughs> they should have done something with like different stuffed animals, where they like put one in through the side, and then took right. that one out through the back and put a different one there, <laughs> which I guess wouldn't have taught any sort of mathematical concepts. Right. But I would just like to see what the baby thought. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was interesting because these are babies that can't even talk, you know, but they can tell, they can at least understand that much. Right. I guess that, I guess that means that the, the sort of a fundamental part of learning isn't necessarily being able to communicate, but being able to observe things and, um, right. and to remember those things, at least for a short short duration right yeah have we talked about um theory of mind on the podcast before i don't, I don't think know. so <laughs> i'm gonna say no <laughs> <laughs> I, I know i've i don't know i've talked to different people about it but um it's basically the the concept that um people have different knowledge um and so we don't all know the same things and it's something that actually you learn, I think when you're around like four or five years old. And, uh, so I saw them doing some experiments with this where, um, they had, one of the things was they had a kid, um, who had like a bag of M&Ms and they were like, what's in the bag? And he was like, it's candy. And so they're like, oh, let's see. And so they opened the bag of M&Ms and it's got like pencils in it. And the kid's like, what? That's weird. <laughs> and then, so, uh, when they, then they, they, they put the pencils back in, they leave the candy there, and then, um, they're like, they ask him, you know, if your dad comes in, what's he's gonna, what is he gonna think is in the bag? And they're like, pencils. Because they now know there are pencils in the bag, so they assume everyone else knows <laughs> that there no. are pencils in the bag. <laughs> or this, the other example, they had like, um, a, a kid watching like a video where these two girls are playing with their toys and then one girl's playing with a doll and the other girl's playing with something else and the one girl playing with the doll leaves and then the other girl goes over, takes the doll and hides it under a basket. Um, and so then they ask the, the kid who's watching like, when she comes back in, where's she going to look for the doll? And they're like, she's going to look under the basket because that's where it is. <laughs> right. But then like, after like, uh, I think four or five, maybe it's five, they, they know it's like, well, they don't know the same thing I know anymore. So I don't know why that happens. But <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah. It's interesting. I guess the sort of, um, universal stages of development that, <laughs> that humans go through. Mm-hmm. Um, on their way to becoming a, a real person. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite thing that kids don't understand when they're little is pronouns. 
like they don't understand like because you know your parents ask you all kinds of questions when you're a baby or they offer you things and they say like you you know do you want this or uh you know whatever and like when kids are little they don't understand that you means something different than yourself like you internalize they internalize you to mean me so rather than being abstract <laughs> um the example i like is about you actually <laughs> um mom has told me this before that um when you were little she would all, she would ask you um do you want mommy to hold you and then sometimes if you wanted to be held you would say mommy hold you <laughs> and i think that's like the cutest thing ever <laughs> so i can't wait for our our little our little kid to be to not understand pronouns yet <laughs> <laughs> or like uh that's what was the the grilled cheeses story oh yeah I had a, I was at Starbucks, um, several months ago and there was this, this guy and two boys. I assumed he was their dad. And the kid was like, he looked like he was like, I don't know, eight to 10, somewhere in there. And the, the kid said to his dad, I want grilled cheeses. <laughs> and the dad was like, you made a grilled cheese sandwich. And he was like, I want grilled cheeses. And he was like, and the dad was like trying so hard to understand. He was like, wait, do you want multiple grilled cheese sandwiches or do you want like one grilled cheese sandwich with multiple kinds of cheese on it? And the kid just kept saying, I want grilled cheeses. (laughs) (laughs) And he said it several times and the dad was getting so frustrated. And he was like, finally, the dad said, no, I need you to tell me you understand that one of that that's plural. (laughs) So that means you want many of something. (laughs) And the kid just like never budged. He just kept saying, I want grilled cheeses. Okay, that's probably, we've probably talked way too long about this, <laughs> and uh, I'm not even sure if any of it's usable, so. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick break so I can stop this so that we don't lose any of it, uh, and then we will continue later. So, uh, you've been listening to Taekwondo, The Shame Chronicles. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Um... Sorry about the the first part of the episode that wasn't very funny, <laughs> uh, but hopefully you guys learned something from it, um, or at least found it interesting. Uh, but I want to talk about a, a, a new segment for the show um, that I want to call Workshop, and guys, what this is, is sort of, um, if you guys have any ideas for, um, let's say, a movie or a story or anything like that, uh, but, you, but you think maybe it could... Uh, Use the attention of two other humans, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just uh, just to get some ideas or to, to finalize your idea. Uh, that's what this segment is about. So, um, Melanie, I understand that you have sort of uh, an idea in mind. So, you want to explain what that is? Sure. Um, okay. So, we just went and saw um, the Lucky One, the new Nicholas Sparks movie, and uh, and I I I always leave Nicholas Sparks movies feeling um, at once like, oh, great movie. I find that man attractive. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> and then I immediately feel like 
the feminist part of me should really like hate everything about it. Um, <laughs> and so I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years when I've seen his, well, when I've seen the adaptations of his books, um, sort of trying to pinpoint what exactly it is that actually draws me into those movies. Um, despite the fact that like I can think critically about gender. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, uh, Josh has already had to listen to several hours of me talking about this, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe he'll chime in with some new ideas too. But, but, uh, I've decided that I, what I really want to be able to do is write a feminist version of a Nicholas Sparks romance movie where, uh, where a woman, uh, is not sort of the passive player in the romance. So, like, she's the one doing grand gestures and sort of like, the one who has the most influence over them falling in love. So like, uh-huh. even though, so a lot of people probably haven't seen the lucky one yet because just came out. So I don't want to ruin it. But if you take the notebook, for example, which most people have seen, um, um you have, I, I haven't seen it. You have not seen the notebook. <laughs> no. You're joking. Okay. <laughs> no, I really haven't. You really haven't seen the notebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you seen any of his adaptations? Um, you probably ha- well. Did, did he, you saw did he do the one? Yeah, the one with Mandy Moore. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I saw that one. Well, that can work too. So, in a walk to remember, that one's slightly different because, first of all, the girl sort of um, changes him, and then he comes in with all these grand gestures. But mm-hmm. for instance, he builds her a telescope, and right. he takes on all of her like. Well, this is the movie, not the book. But he takes on her whole list of like things to do before she dies, and he like tries to make them all happen. Um, and so it's like all of these. It's like one grand gesture after another, and so he's like totally in control of their romance, of them falling in love with each other. Um, in the Notebook, without giving too much away to you, Kyle. Uh, don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> <laughs> In the notebook, the main guy in the story, Noah, first of all, um, so they're, they're in love over the summer and then her family moves her away and he writes her a letter every day for a year. That's a pretty grand gesture. Right. She doesn't get the letters, but whatever. And then, um, because she said how she, like, they, he takes her to this old, um, rundown abandoned house when they're, like, when they're younger. And once she has left, he buys this house. He rebuilds it, fixes it all up with his own hands, and he gives her all of the things she envisioned the house having, and like right down to blue shutters. <laughs> and so, anyway, so my point is that in all of these movies, the men are, they always do these grand gestures. They're usually sensitive in some way, whether that's overly, overly, like, obviously sensitive or like a restrained sensitive. Um, and they always build things with their hands. Like always. <laughs> um, okay. So my point is, so what I would like to do is write a Nicholas Sparks love story where the woman basically does all of those things and the man <laughs> falls in love with her because I think it's important that in, the, in these movies, it's predominantly a female audience, but the, what they're really doing is falling in love with the guy. They're not necessarily like falling in love with the couple. Right. Does that make sense? So, uh, but this, I don't know how well it will work since you haven't actually seen, um, the notebook, (laughs) which we have been the, does it, does it work with, uh, a walk to remember? Um, yeah, we could try it with that. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. <laughs> I don't know how well I remember the movie. Um, but uh, in that movie, the main character's name is Landon, I think. Wait, you're saying the main character is a, is the boy? Yeah. Okay. Because he's the one who changes, and he's the one who makes all of the actions. Sure, okay. Okay, so in the beginning of that movie, it opens up with him and his friends getting wasted and getting convincing this guy to jump off of a, a tower into water where he hurts himself. Uh-huh. So, make that a woman. Okay. <laughs> and she drives a muscle car and listens to, <laughs> listens to loud rock music. Um, and convinces her friend to jump off of a tower where she gets injured to the point of hospitalization for at least a few weeks. Um, she's got some issues with her father who abandoned her mother. And, um, because of her poor behavior, ends up having to work on the school pageant play, whatever. Uh Where she meets the preacher's son. Okay. <laughs> and the preacher's son is homely and wears sweaters and long dresses. <laughs> <laughs> and also sings in the church choir and is going to have the starring role in the, uh, in the play. Okay. So, um, and also the preacher's wife has died. I guess we don't have to change that gender thing, right? We just change the, otherwise it would be the preacher's son. Right. But the preacher would be dead. So, (laughs) so his mom has died. (laughs) Okay. No, no, the preacher would be female and her husband had died. Sure. Yeah. That's what it would be. That's what it would be. That's right. Okay. Well, either way, we'll, we'll keep the preacher the same. Um, so, and then there's some kind of, like, backstory stuff with, like, the female Landon's girlfriend who would then be a boyfriend. And also some peer pressure from his female friends, her female friends. Uh-huh. <laughs> we won't get into all of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, so, they do the play. And the preacher's son sings and looks... Beautiful because he's not wearing his homely dresses and sweaters anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and and what should we call Landon? Lacey? We'll Landria. Call Landria. Okay, so <laughs> Landria falls in love with the preacher's son because of his singing and his beautiful looks. Okay. So then Landria decides that all of the peer pressure that she's getting from her friends and ex-boyfriend about this girl being too homely for her, this boy being too homely for her, (laughs) uh, she decides that uh, it's not worth it, they don't know anything, and now she's beginning to change. And this is the point where Landria begins to pursue the preacher's son. And, um, And the preacher's son has sort of tentatively and sensitively revealed to Andrea, that he has a list of things he'd like to accomplish before he dies, which include um, nerdy telescope sessions in the uh, in the graveyard to like look at stars and stuff, and wanting to be in two places at once, and wanting to have a tattoo, things like this. <laughs> so 
Landria begins trying to provide all of these things. Um, and so the way that Landria gets the preacher's son to go on a date with her is she goes to the preacher himself because the preacher's son has indicated that he's not allowed to date yet. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Landria goes to the preacher and gets permission and also brings um, a more beautiful sweater <laughs> to the preacher's son. <laughs> and they go on a date. And Landria is not a good dancer, but the preacher's son is. And um, the preacher's son convinces her to dance with him. And then uh, Landria takes him, takes her, takes him, <laughs> sorry, takes him to the graveyard <laughs> with a telescope and a blanket and a picnic. And um, they look at stars together. And then Landria puts a tattoo on the preacher's son's shoulder in a really provocative way. Um, and takes the preacher's son to the state line so that the preacher's son can be in two places at once. Uh-huh. And all sorts of things like this. And then there's a short little tangent in the cafeteria where Landria's friends make fun of the preacher's son by shopping his his face onto um, a naked body, which a I naked, guess would also a naked woman's body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that, um, and so they they start falling in love, and then the preacher's son reveals to Landria that he has leukemia and is dying, and the uh, pre- and Landria gets really upset and is really mean, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and just in general patch- <laughs> and then has to patch things up with her father who's a doctor um, and begs this doctor father to uh, to like treat the preacher's son um, but, he, but he won't because he doesn't know anything about the preacher's son and so that makes, him, that makes Landria angry as well um, and then the preacher's son starts really dying and the final grand gesture of their short-lived romance is that Landria proposes to the preacher's son and that they will get married in the church where the preacher's son's parents got married and also builds a telescope for the preacher's son. Right, but that happens outside of the marriage proposal. <laughs> right, well, they're, yeah, yeah, they're not at the same time. Uh... Um yeah. And that's pretty much it. Okay. So so your idea is just switching the gender roles of everybody yes. in the movie, right? Yes. You also mentioned that um, Landria's dad, that, uh, that her dad's name was Dr. Father. <laughs> I really, li- really like that idea. <laughs> uh-huh. Especially... Um, Especially in a movie that's supposed to sort of bring in uh, feminists, or to have more of a feminist uh, right. uh, undertone to it. Right. So, I don't know. I probably I'd probably pay to go see that movie, <laughs> but <laughs> but I don't think that I don't think that many women would, or many men for that matter. <laughs> exactly. And the point is that in the movie. Um, Landon, played by Shane West, who's a fairly attractive young man in the movie, uh, 
he gets to be the bad boy and then he gets to be the sensitive guy and then he like matures and grows up and it's all entirely about him. And in the process of him doing all of those things, he like creates this grand romance with this girl who hardly does anything except die of leukemia. That's a good point. Um, about sort of the, the difference between, uh, how movies that are made for male audiences or, I guess I shouldn't say male, I should say, uh, <laughs> men audience. I don't know what the, what's the gender <laughs> word for? Masculine. <laughs> yes, masculine versus feminine audiences. Um, is that, uh, in movies, uh, you know, for the masculine audience, it's always like the guy being like a superhero or killing people or racing cars or whatever. And for the feminine audience, it's always about a woman falling in love with a man, right? So it's like, in both cases, the movies are always about the woman. Or the, sorry, the man. (laughs) Right. Yeah, of course they are. And in those, in those movies, I are, my point, I think, is that women aren't necessarily trying so much to identify with the woman as they're just trying to fall in love with the guy. So right. the woman can be not very interesting, and, and I, I don't think that they're always not interesting, but they don't have to be as interesting. They don't have to have as much depth, usually. Um, they don't even have to be as attractive as long as the guy's attractive. Can I can I hold you hold you for a second? You sound like you're in the Matrix again. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Josh, I don't know if that's coming across for you. Yeah. Um, Do I still sound like I am? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why. Well, okay, we'll just do the rest of this segment as if you are in the Matrix. (laughs) And that maybe you have the ability to sort of reverse the gender roles (laughs) on a massive societal scale. Sure. That would be a good um, uh, suggestion for the the movie idea, is that to combine the Matrix with A Walk to Remember. (laughs) (laughs) Can I... Can I just say, instead of A Walk to Remember, could we maybe do Sweet November, since it already has Keanu Reeves in it, and it's basically <laughs> the same movie as A Walk to Remember? Sure. Um, I haven't seen that, but I, I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, also, wasn't Keanu Reeves in a movie that was sort of similar to The Notebook about a time-traveling mailbox? Oh, yeah, yeah he was in uh, The Lake House with Sandra Bullock. The time-traveling mailbox. <laughs> yes. That is a better title. Yeah. I mean, that's why they went with uh, Time Traveler's Wife. That would have been really lame if it was, like, the guy who guy who goes through time naked. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, is, who is also married. Right. <laughs> the husband. The husband, th- husband in time. <laughs> that's what they should have called that. <laughs> Oh my gosh! It sounds like a a movie where a woman's trying to get a husband. He'll be a he'll be my husband in time. <laughs> <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> uh, but like the real the real issue I have with a lot of these movies is that uh, it does seem like it's very important that the men build things with their hands or they fix things with their hands. Uh huh. Because um, that's which what women very... want, right? They want a guy who's able to sort of take care of them through his own yeah. power. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously that's what they're playing on. But when I stop back and think about would I be attracted to this, to this guy in real life, 
probably like not. I mean, I mean, like <laughs> <laughs> not because they can build things, you know, like that's not an important criteria for me in terms of finding a mate. However, I do think that it is one of those gender stereotypes that, that a lot of women do think is important, but, um, but when I'm trying to think of like the feminist version of it where the woman is the more active one, like if a woman built a house, uh, and, and like made it to the specifications of her high school boyfriend <laughs> in, in hopes of her coming back and living in the house with her, that's crazy, right? <laughs> that's like, that's not romantic and that's like a stalker. Sweet. It's, yeah, it's weird if a woman does it. Right. I would say in real life, that would be weird if a guy did it too. That might just, like, I think that in, in a movie, that would still be portrayed. If, if a woman did it, that would definitely be portrayed as like, she's a crazy stalker girl. Uh Um, but if it happened in real life, a, a woman, a regular, normal woman would think that that was crazy as well. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I'm not, I'm not a woman, so I don't know for certain. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reason why I've never built a house for someone. It's because I just figured that it would be weird. <laughs> but when you ask if that's the reason. <laughs> yeah. But, but when you ask people about that movie, like when you ask women about that movie and like why they like the guy so much, it's like, he built this house and like, you know, and he like made it the house that she wanted and all this stuff. Right. So. so I think this goes back to another another problem with uh, the sort of male-dominated um, uh, spin on basically everything in society. And that is that uh, women are being tricked into thinking that these are, these are normal things because of these movies. <laughs> and right. <laughs> tricked into thinking that these are the things that, are, that they're actually attracted to, when if, if this actually happened in real life, they would just be creeped out. Sure. Like, I can't think of a situation where a woman would say, like, a real-life woman would say, yeah, the, the, this guy, uh, from my high school who used to be in a group of people who made fun of me all the time, um, <laughs> realized I was dying and, uh, built me a, a house, and now we lived <laughs> in it for a month. And I fell in love with him. Right. I mean, I, I'm not saying that women don't appreciate grand gestures, but, uh, there are certain gestures that I think are creepy, uh, <laughs> no matter, <laughs> well, certain gestures that are creepy in real life that maybe aren't necessarily portrayed as creepy in the, on the big screen. Right. Or like, like, not to give anything away in the lucky one, but he shows up and, and gets his job at the woman's place of business and starts fixing things up uh-huh. without being asked to. And it's sort of like... On the one hand, sure, that's a nice thing to do. On the other hand, like, I didn't ask you to do that, and I'm paying you to do something else. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like... And, like, and if, again, if that was a woman who got hired at this place, and then she just started fixing gutters and stuff, or going onto that's the person's not... private property and fixing things, like... <laughs> that's not totally right, though, because... When he was hired, they told him, your job is to help. Like, we need help. That's, That's true. They didn't specify what it was. But yeah. But again, though, if it had been a woman, like, maybe the guy wouldn't have a problem with her fixing those things, but would it have been romantic? Sure. I don't know. 
What I the other thing I think is funny is that um, when we talk about this and we're listing like there's a there's a pretty good checklist of things you can point out for a Nicholas Sparks leading man, and it's like what she's talking about. Um, he's good with his hands, you know, can like fix things. Um, he typically has like a sensitive side, like he reads um, poetry or philosophy. He has like an, an intellectual side that's kind of quiet. Um, he's kind of reserved, typically. Um, often plays a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, that's important. And then we list all those things, and like, and Melanie's like, those like those aren't the things that I would find attractive in a man in the real world. And then I think. I do all of those things. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but the difference is, the difference is that you, like, I met you in an intellectual capacity, and so I think that I probably fall a whole lot more for your sense of humor and for you being smart and being interested in the same things as me than you going around and, like, fixing my boat. You know why, though, is because I don't look like Zac Efron. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you have these sort of, if you're like a dark brooding loner and uh, play a musical instrument, the only way that that's attractive is if you're good looking. <laughs> it helps. Yeah, it definitely helps. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that those aren't attractive qualities in a person. I'm just saying that they are always the qualities in his characters. And the other thing about them is that they never have such a bad flaw that you would honestly be like, that's a bad person. Or that that person's character is questionable. Like, they're always these perfect... Like, these perfect people. Like, I think it's a bad movie for men, too, because... Or they're bad movies for men, because men can't live up to that, either. Like, women aren't going to find a man who's that perfect, and men aren't going to be able to be that perfect. And so it's just a completely, like, horrible, awful, fictional version of what <laughs> men are. Well, so I think that's... Um, I guess if you're, if you're going to see a movie um, for the escapism... That's one thing. <laughs> but if you're going to the movies um, purely to see like what you should what you should do to be a proper man or a proper woman, <laughs> uh, then that's where that's where this uh, is really an issue, right? I mean, I guess there's a there's an underlying issue where this is uh, sort of a problem in that that's how that's the only way that men and women are portrayed. Um, so if you didn't know better, then uh, that's obviously a problem, but. But it's it's bad storytelling. Like I think this is really what comes. And this is really why I leave those movies being like, "Oh, he's attractive," and then being like, "Oh, I'm ashamed of myself," because uh, because in those movies, like the the reasons that they get split apart for whatever amount of time that they do get split apart in the movie is never because of the choice that the guy makes. It seems sometimes like it is. Like in in this one, like even from the preview, you know, like he went there because he found this picture of this woman uh, while he was in a war. And then uh, and then he doesn't tell her that that's why he showed up. But that's not really like he does try to tell her. And so it's like it's not really that bad of a choice he makes. It's not it's not a deeply flawed choice that, you know, threatens everything about their relationship. And, like, in The Notebook, it's another case of, like, her family pressures, like, pull them apart. So it's always, like, outside forces or, like, 
something that's masquerading as a choice that the guy makes, but it's not really that bad. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. I feel like this is a pretty poor example for this workshop segment. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think well, we're getting it. Was... <laughs> the lucky one would have been a better example because it's a lot funnier when you switch the generals, but I don't want to give anything away from that Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't seen that one. I don't, I'm not a... I don't apologize for that, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I have, I have an idea for a story that, um, I thought about for like five seconds today. Okay. Um, <laughs> And so here's the premise. Basically, uh, have you guys ever read uh, the book The Hatchet? Yeah, a long yeah. time. Yeah. So um, I would. I'm calling this <laughs> this book the full size axe. <laughs> <laughs> and what this is is it's a uh, a new high school graduate who um, has joined uh, his fire department as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And there's a firefighting symposium in Canada, and he has to fly there with uh, with part of his uh, his firefighting crew. Um, and along the way, uh, they hit some bad weather, and their plane crashes. Um, mm-hmm. And he's the only one that survives. And all that he has with him are his flame retardant clothes and his full size fireman axe. <laughs> <laughs> But I can't really think of where to go from there, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the Uh, thing that... Also, alternate name for this book is plagiarism. (laughs) 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 Oh, excuse me, you haven't read my, uh, my, my second grade retelling of Iron Will, which was called Something (laughs) of Steel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's a different story. No, the thing well, I always uh, remember, huh? Well, I was when I was in the in intermediate school, we were writing books, and uh, I just started reading a wrinkle, uh, a wrinkle in time, <laughs> and I I wrote a book uh, called A Rip in the Time Warp. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing I always remember about the hatchet. Is the part where, uh, so the, the plane crashed into like water, right? Yeah, it crashed into a lake. Right. And then he can like go back to the plane and the pilot is in there dead. Right. Um, the thing I remember about that is that the, uh, there was a description of the bodily gases of the dead pilot in the plane. And it was like such a vivid description that like I can't remember the actual description, I, but I will never forget that you it's have in a that visual book. Visual image of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and his like I feel like it even described his like rotting skin or something. It was something really gross. <laughs> so you should definitely have something like that in the uh, the full size. Sure. Uh, you know what's also kind of gross about the, uh, about that is that um, the guy created some sort of uh, trap for fish. Uh-huh. Uh, in the same lake, so it's probably oh. pretty likely that those fish fed on those dead bodies. Yeah, <laughs> that's so gross. <laughs> so I think now we have a plot twist that you can develop. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, oh, go ahead. This is going to be a combination of the hatchet and that movie Ravenous, uh, which is a, it's about people um, 
resorting to cannibalism, not out of any sort of necessity, but because they oh. gain power from it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he learns how to, he, he through eating the fish, he uh, discovers how to fly a plane. He doesn't know how to fix because, it first. Because oh, yeah. that fish uh, ate the ate the guy's brain or something. Ate the pilot's <laughs> yeah. brain. Yeah. <laughs> just the uh, just the plane flying part. <laughs> yeah. The interesting part of this book uh, is that the fish are all zombies. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they only eat brains. Uh, but fortunately, um, that disease hasn't crossed over into humans. So. But unless you caught all the fish right away. They would have pooped some of it out. <laughs> <laughs> so there'd be missing pieces of the brain. That's true. Yeah, Unless he they're, also they're... ate the poop. Yeah, it would be it would be a bad idea for him to eat all the fish too, because that's a um, self replenishing food source for him. Yeah. He just so, yeah. gorges on all the fish in one night. <laughs> yeah. He's like he's like, gotta get that pilot brain in me. <laughs> Oh, do you think that those fish could become pilot fish? Yeah. I think that's how a flying fish evolved, right? <laughs> right. Um, the the stories that you guys mentioned, Melanie, here is about uh, the plagiarized stories that you guys had uh, about uh-huh. Iron Will and Wrinkle in Time. Um, I had a story, a uh, similar plagiarized story um, that I wrote in, like, second grade or so. Uh, called Triassic Shark. <laughs> I think I remember this. <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't really remember the opening uh, scene in Jurassic Park, the the book, not the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. But I had just read Jurassic Park, uh, and uh, I want to say there's a scene where somebody gets attacked by a raptor or something. And it, like, goes into pretty vivid detail about, like, entrails spilling out or something. <laughs> um, and I did basically the exact same thing, uh, except basically uh, a shark that was sort of previously undiscovered um, that killed a, like, killed a diver. And that, that diver's body, like, washed up on the shore of some, like, Costa Rican island. <laughs> Um, I I think I ended up turning this story into a short story in like fourth or fifth grade, mm-hmm. and it ended uh, with a de- with a description of the island where the shark lived. I don't know how this <laughs> how the ending of this book is is a proper ending, but <laughs> they basically set off a nuclear explosion on the island to kill everything there, and somehow that killed the shark too. But also, <laughs> but it also killed the main character <laughs> who was on the island. <laughs> And I described sort of um, the uh, the damage to the various tissues in the body <laughs> as the as the shockwave and the radiation hit it <laughs> from the nuclear explosion. And it was basically a description from Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark when they open the ark and all the people's faces melt off. <laughs> and did you did you turn this into your teacher? Yes, I did. <laughs> did your teacher say anything to you? No. I think she might have said that I had a vivid imagination, which is pretty much the opposite of what happened. That's the only, that's really the only teacher response to that. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to say about this. 
Especially if you can't read past, like, you know, the first couple paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that when I rewrote um, Iron Will, I think I called it Heart of Steel, and his name is Heart. Um, <laughs> I stole the exact opening to that movie. Like, all I did was change his name, and I and I wrote it in prose rather than it being a movie. Like, I really didn't change anything about it, although I may have, uh, I may have lingered. Like, on the page, it's different than in a movie, but I probably named every single one of the dogs in his dog sledding team <laughs> and, like, gave them all a history. <laughs> And, like, a very unique personality, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. This is the one with the floppy ear. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That's the stinky one. <laughs> Was there a stinky one? I don't remember. There's always, there's usually been. always a stinky one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, uh, my Rip, Rip in the Time Warp book, I actually didn't finish reading every one time. I read, like, the first couple chapters. And then I wrote my, my, it was like a story picture book, so it wasn't, like, a lot of prose. Um, but then my story basically ended up being exactly like the novel. <laughs> I was like, well, I didn't know. I hadn't read all of it. <laughs> so you were able to sort of deduce the ending. <laughs> I guess so. I guess After so. you sort of gotten the author's mindset, uh, <laughs> yeah. and once you started writing it verbatim, you were able to sort of uh, suss out what the end was supposed to be. Um, when I uh, When I was in a terrible, terrible relationship and also taking women's studies classes and developing the foundation of my feminist personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I outlined a story about a, a woman who's in an oppressive relationship and turns to art and music and then kills herself and realized that I had written The Awakening, <laughs> but I had not read it. <laughs> Which is like one of the like pinnacle like feminist novels that people ask like that will assign you to read in those classes. And uh yeah, when I, I I later had to read it in a class and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the book I was gonna write. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of I think this has circled back around to where we started with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How we never come up with anything new, but we're just the sum of our uh, human experience, basically. <laughs> right. But I mean, stories are metaphors. What? For real, <laughs> for real life. <laughs> what? Like they help us understand the world around us. That's why people tell stories. I thought it was because there was so much money in it. <laughs> <laughs> My other idea for a story was sort of about a... Uh, Novelty-sized uh, tiny hatchet <laughs> <laughs> that that maybe a clown would have, <laughs> or maybe it's not even uh, like a novelty hatchet in its size, but maybe it's like really blunt, like made of plastic or something. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> well, so in this context, there would be some sort of uh, clown symposium in Canada. And along the way, the plane crash landed uh, somewhere in the in the Great White North. Did you guys ever read the sequel to the Hatchet? Uh, I can't remember if I read it or not. I didn't read it. I didn't read it because it sounded stupid to me. And that is this kid uh, who was stranded in Canada or somewhere. I think it was Canada in the first book. 
uh, just to prove to people that it wasn't a fluke and that he could do it again, he intentionally got himself stranded in Canada again with right. only a hatchet. But then he lost his hatchet. Oh. What was it called? I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> Not a hatchet. I think I remember that. I think I remember reading that synopsis, but I can't remember if I actually read the book or not. Yeah, I read the synopsis and decided not to read the book. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with any um, sequel to a survival kind of story. <laughs> yeah. Which is what I thought um, the second Hunger Games book was going to. I was like trying to figure out how they were going to have a second and third book after I read the first one. Yeah, me too. I was a little bit worried that, um, cause I don't really actually get to the Hunger Games part of the first book until like the last third or so. Right. Um, and so I was worried that, uh, I wasn't going to get the payoff at the end of the book that, <laughs> yeah, like that she all three made books. it through. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> okay, so they just started the Hunger Games. <laughs> it's going to be like some epic thing where at the very end of the last book is when she survives or whatever. Right. Yeah. Sorry to spoil the first book for anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That would be like if they had another um, Lord of the Flies, like if there had been a sequel to that book. (laughs) Can I? Where they all go back as adults. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, maybe they should do that. (laughs) Uh, I think it would be interesting um, if instead of. boat or it was a plane right a plane crash instead of a plane full of uh full of little boys if it was a plane full of little girls (laughs) and if and it was called lady of the flies (laughs) (laughs) this works with everything i think um okay well that this was a segment that we did (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's called workshop and uh if any of anyone out in the listening audience if you have something if you have an idea for a story or an idea for any sort of creative medium um and you need some uh some ideas for how to how to get it to that next level um you can uh, you can email us at shamechronicles at gmail.com or call our voice uh voice line at 914-40-SHAME. Um, tell us your idea, and uh, we will try to improve on it um, in a non, non-plagiaristic or gender-reversing <laughs> way, uh, <laughs> if we can. So um, let's, uh, let's take a quick break um, before we wrap up the show with uh, the voicemails. So uh, you've been listening to Taekwondo, The Shame Chronicles. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Um, guys, we're going to close up the show by uh, doing what we always do, and that is reading uh, the user-submitted emails and uh, playing the voice messages that everyone's left. Um, so uh, I guess let's just start off. Uh, we got an email from uh, Stephen regarding the last show. So here goes. I'm listening to the podcast now, and you guys came upon the brief topic of the monkeys. They actually tour more often than every 10 years. However, <laughs> Michael Nesmith does not join them because he hates that era of his life and doesn't need the money. <laughs> and then in parentheses, his mother invented whiteout. 
awesome. Yeah. Uh, and Davy Jones died in February, so he doesn't tour with them either. Right. Um, they did reunite once on Boy Meets World. Uh, because they all had parts to play, including my favorite, Peter Tork, who played Topanga's father. They are my favorite band ever. <laughs> um, also, does Mel still think I'm Jewish? I just have to know. <laughs> A lot of people thought Stephen was Jewish, not just me. <laughs> I know that Stephen was not Jewish, but he would make a really great Jew. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I can't really remember all the reasons, but... Um, please he... please name some of the racist qualities that... <laughs> no, but I think that he eats a kosher... Well, maybe not kosher, but... Uh, I don't think he he's totally kosher, pork. but... Yeah, he doesn't he does eat pork. pork. What about uh, shellfish? I've never seen I've it. I've never seen him eat shellfish. <laughs> Is it just uh is it okay for Jewish people to eat um aquatic mammals? Uh I mean not in a social sense. It's not okay for anyone to eat aquatic right. mammals because that implies <laughs> that implies like a dolphin or a whale uh which only the Japanese like to eat. But is it okay for a Jew to eat like that kind of seafood? I don't know. I think that um like polar bears are also classified as aquatic mammals, actually. Are they? Yeah. Yeah, but you also shouldn't eat polar bears. They're already endangered as it is. Also, like seals. Right. Right. Penguins. Rists. Oh, I know Steven's afraid of penguins. So, so he wouldn't. He wouldn't eat one. He probably narwhal. <laughs> narwhal. <laughs> penguins aren't mammals. Right. Oh, right. They're birds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but doesn't Stephen also like some comedians who are also Jewish? Sure, everybody does. Well, <laughs> All comedians are Jewish, not to not to overgeneralize. No, some are Canadian. Canadian Jewish. <laughs> Canuish. Um, <laughs> I really like the sort of stereotypical Jewish sense of humor. Uh-huh. And um the self-deprecating probably... humor. Yeah. Or the observational humor. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly the self-deprecating kind. Um, That's also why I like British humor. Sorry. Sorry to interject. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I don't know if I should say this, but now that I've said that I have something to say, I guess I should. Um, so when we were, when we first found out we were pregnant and we were sort of joking around like, you know, like, you have all those jokes, like, about the mailman or whatever, and, like, the baby comes out being something different than, like, right. whatever. I thought it'd be really cool to have a Jewish baby <laughs> somehow. <laughs> like, a miraculously Jewish baby. <laughs> I hope that doesn't make me sound like a terrible person. And if you like something, that doesn't make you terrible, right? I guess it depends on why you like it. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's true. I feel like in another in another life I could have been Jewish. Uh, I do too. But so a lot of times um, in my sort of younger days, uh, typically uh, in like college when I was hanging around with um, with people who were, for the most part, my friends, mm -hmm. um, they would call me a Jew because of my hair. 
and because oh. I was stingy with money. So I feel like... <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> and, awful. And really, the only reason why they called me stingy with money is because um, they were also stingy with money, but <laughs> I had the excuse that I didn't have a job and was physically unable to pay for the things that they also didn't want to pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, but occasionally uh, I would have like uh, like Aggie bucks or something. <laughs> and so occasionally I would buy things for uh, for them, but whenever I couldn't, that then I was being stingy. Anyway. <laughs> uh, to answer your question, Stephen, no, Melanie does not think that you're still Jewish. But she she wishes you were, maybe. I swear that he told me at some point that he was Jewish. Yeah, I or he somehow right. indicated that he was Jewish. Um, and he, I just remember being very surprised when I found out he wasn't. Like, I didn't believe him when he told me he wasn't Jewish. I think part <laughs> of it is, like, his family is, like, from the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And so they have this very sort of... They're, they're actually from Jersey. And I think they have this, like, Northeastern Jewish feel to them. Yeah. <laughs> they, they feel Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> have a Jewish texture. And he also knew a lot about Jewish culture, and so I think he, it would just come up often in conversation, so that might have been part of it. And I didn't think he celebrated Christmas. No, that's but not then, true. But then, well, I know that's not true, because I know that he goes to the mall and he buys all his Christmas presents, and he asks Zach to go with him. So so I know he <laughs> celebrates Christmas, but I think that's actually how I found out that he wasn't Jewish, that he was going Christmas shopping. And I was like, oh, that's really nice that Steven's going Christmas shopping when he doesn't even celebrate Christmas. He's <laughs> <So. laughs> just doing something really nice for all of his Christian friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so that was the only email that we got. <laughs> um, if you guys would like to send us uh, an email to let us know uh, what your religion is um, or who your favorite uh, favorite member of the Monkees was, and why they don't need money. Um, you can send us an email. It's uh, shamechronicles at gmail.com. Um, you can also hit up our website. It has all the contact information there. Um, we did this week also get a uh, voicemail, uh, also from Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's a little too long for me to read the Google translation. Um, but I do want to... I do want to read uh, a couple of things from the from the Google translation. So one of these is shame keys. <laughs> um, another one was uh, Jeff Flock person's death cab for cutie. <laughs> they got death cab for cutie, huh? <laughs> yeah, I thought I That's thought impressive. that part was interesting. Um, Okay, that's all I'm gonna that's all I'm gonna read from this translation. You guys ready? Yes. Hey, it's Steven again. Um I have a topic for um uh, I can't remember the segment thing. I'm forgetting that. Uh the 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 segment where you guys discuss two options. Uh I wanna hear Death Clock versus Death Cap for Cutie. Uh can you I, you can probably find Death Cap for Cutie. A good example of Death Clock is the Duncan Hills coffee jingle. Um, it's short and pretty good. Um, anyway, uh, also, 
uh, shame. Nah, there's, there's nothing to be shameful about. Come on, just own the moment. All you gotta do. Um, anyway, well, I enjoy listening. I hope to hear you guys again. Bye. Oh, Steven, I can't remember that's what that. Bye. Um, so part of this, I think, uh, he wanted us to, to add, um, something to our versus segment. Mm-hmm. He wants to hear us discuss death clock versus death cab for cutie. Right. Um, so I, I guess that's where the Google translation didn't, didn't understand the word death clock. <laughs> it, it thought that was Jeff Flock. Um, I would, I would talk about Jeff Flock versus death cab for cutie. <laughs> uh I don't know if I don't know if you guys are familiar with Death Clock, but I'm I'm fairly familiar with them. Mm-mm. Um this is, I believe, a sort of uh fake band from uh the animated show on Cartoon Network called um Metalocalypse, I think is what it's called. Uh I believe yeah. the name of that band is is Death Clock. Uh there is also a Death Clock song in, I don't know if it was one of the uh, Rock Band games or a Guitar Hero game, but it was in one of those games. Um, and if you haven't, if you haven't heard the song, I think it's called Death Copter. <laughs> there's a there's a music video that you can watch uh, that's pretty good. So maybe uh, maybe on the next music edition of Versus, we'll talk about uh, Death Clock and Death Cab for Cutie. How will we know who's right? Uh, yeah, I'm the final arbiter of all <laughs> of all segments. That's gonna be Is my that new not nickname. Clear to you yet, Melanie? <laughs> well, I just thought because it was Stevens with his verses. No, no, that's <laughs> he. He just he just gave us the idea, much oh. like sometimes you guys give me ideas for things to do. Uh, but still, I'm like I said, I'm the sort of I'm the segment arbiter. Um, in that the root word for arbit, arbiter, <laughs> is similar to the root word for arbitrary. Um, so, uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do that. That's a good suggestion, Stephen. Um, the other thing, uh, he mentioned is that he doesn't have anything to be shameful about. Um, which I can't, uh, I can't judge that. Uh, as I don't know Stephen that well, but I think you know him well enough to point out some things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to remember to apologize for, to Stephen in the next <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, the good uh, thing about Stephen is that um, Stephen is willing to. Uh, He's willing to go in public with facial hair that many people would be ashamed of. <laughs> yes, I I have heard stories about um, non-symmetrical facial hair. Yes. Uh, so I would say definitely shame has a has a personal embarrassment component to it. So if you're not personally embarrassed by anything, then yeah, sure, nothing to be shameful about. Exactly, which is something that I like about Stephen. <laughs> I don't I don't think that he's. Uh, I don't think he gets ashamed, or I don't think that's true, but I don't think that Stephen um, is like, um, he's not afraid to, you know, just be himself. Right. Shame cool. Shame is not a driving component of his personality. Not as far as I can tell. 
<laughs> um, so, okay, Steven, it doesn't sound like you're very suited to actually come and, and be a host on the show, but <laughs> I, I kind of feel like maybe you should. <laughs> so I don't know if you, if you ever have time. We normally record on Sundays. But I'm I'm extending to you a personal and direct uh, invitation to come and uh, be a host on our show. Um, so if you're up for it, uh, I'd like to have you on. Um, what? How would he uh, contact you, Kyle? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, through either of the two ways that he's contacted us today. <laughs> One is, one is by sending an email to shamechronicles at gmail.com, which I think I've mentioned about ten times now. Um, <laughs> the other way is by leaving us a voice message on our voicemail line um, at 914-40-SHAME. Uh, that's 4-0-S-H-A-M-E, in case you can't spell. Um, we also have a website. Maybe that's been the problem all along. <laughs> yeah. How do you spell 40? Um <laughs> It's not F-O-U-R-T-Y. That's correct. <laughs> um, it's also, uh, I realized just now that this could be uh, a voice line for people who um, are addicted to malt liquor beverages <laughs> <laughs> of a certain size. <laughs> Um, it's not for that either, but I get, I suppose if you are addicted to forties, you can also, um, you can call in about that if you want. Uh, we also have a website. It's, uh, shamechronicles.com. Uh, no hyphens or anything exactly as it sounds, um, exactly, uh, as it's spelled, provided that you can spell chronicle correctly. Right. Um, which for... Uh, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that when I first was registering the website, I almost misspelled it. Uh, <laughs> ALS? As, yeah. Uh, which would have been really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but it would have fit perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it would have. Can I, okay, I need to go on another tangent here. Um, my first, the first blog that I ever created was like uh, maybe four or five years ago, and it was going to be a blog about video game design, even though I'm not really a video game designer, but it was something I was interested in. Um, and I called it the the video game development blog or something like that. And I spelled development wrong. <laughs> and I did a Google search for development, and I was like, holy crap, my my blog is like the top result. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I saw the text right below the search box that said, "Did you mean?" <laughs> but at that point, at that point, it was like too late to change it. Um, and fortunately, the host of that blog sort of went under, so there's no trace of it on the internet anymore. Uh, as far as I know, it might be in Google's cache still. So if you, if you have a particular uh, misspelling of the word development, you might be able to find it. Um, okay, so this this concludes the uh, the Stephen segment of the podcast. Um, if you have something that you want to tell us, if you have an idea for a versus segment or an idea for a story that you want us to workshop, uh, please uh, send us your ideas and. Uh, They'll they'll definitely get heard on the podcast. As always, we have an open in- invitation to, uh, for Philip Seymour Hoffman, or uh, I don't know if Philip Seymour Hoffman has any siblings, but if they want to come on the show, 
if, if maybe they're not famous enough to uh, to be sort of a snob about coming on our show. Not that I'm calling PSH a snob. Uh, if you're out there and listening to this, uh, Philip, can I call you Philip? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think he just hasn't heard us yet. That's all. Sure. Um, I have been sending an email to his publicist every week about the new episode <laughs> where we talk extensively about him for uh, three to four seconds at the end of every podcast. <laughs> at the end of every two and a half hour podcast. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, yeah, w- my attempts to um, transition this thing to a close have been uh, a failure so far. So I'm just going to say... Um, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can. Guys, do you have anything else that you want to mention before we stop? No. Um, happy Earth Day. Oh, right. Happy Earth Day. <laughs> uh, except for the mosquitoes. Yeah. Uh, European mosquitoes. Uh, okay. That's going to do it for the Shame Chronicles. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Um, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Okay, we didn't think about how awkward it would be to have to wait for the 30-second <laughs> thing to finish while everyone's just being perfectly quiet. <laughs> or at least I didn't think about it. Um, I think uh, next time we could make clear sounds of, like, packing up or rattling papers or something like that. <laughs> right. Like closing a book. Uh <laughs> The only choice the woman makes in the entire movie is uh, she goes to have sex with him at one point. <laughs> and other As than if that, that's it's... a choice. <laughs> <laughs> it was Zac Efron. I mean, come on. <laughs>